from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Friday, the 6th of October, and I hope you have some big weekend plans. Before that, though, we have sort of a special show today on sales, sales only. We're going to start off talking about the sales staircase from the sales maven, Vicki Rausch, and then we will talk about B2B sales in a detached sort of way with Bill Kasky. Two amazing salespeople who have some great advice for us. You know, I actually set my first business up in a way that I wouldn't have to sell. I brought on my friend, Doug, whose birthday was a couple of days ago, you may remember. And I just thought that with Doug around, Mr. Personality, I wouldn't have to sell. <laughs> How stupid and naive 24-year-old 24, 24 entrepreneurs can be. That lasted for about a week, I think, maybe. And so I think learning for all of us entrepreneurs, learning to sell is maybe one of the most important things we need to do. To that end, I'm very excited to welcome another great guest who's going to help us. Please welcome Nikki Roush. She is known as the sales maven. She has sold to little organizations like NASA, the Bill and Melinda Gates organization, uh, places, incredible organizations where you have to be the absolute best. She has written several books, including her latest called The Selling Staircase, Mastering the Art of Relationship Selling. Nikki, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. I love the staircase. It seems to represent a lot of things. You're getting better. You're improving. You're going up. You're succeeding. You're growing. It's a great analogy. Where did it come from? How'd you come up with that idea? I actually came up with that idea when I was trying to break down in the most basic form this, the structure of a sales conversation with a client. And as I was kind of walking her through it, she's like, you mean it's like a staircase? You go one step to the next? And I was like, yes, that's exactly what it is. Most people understand that you go from one step to the next, to the next, to the next. You don't start at the bottom and hop your way all the way up to the top step, which is the biggest mistake that people often make in sales is they think they got to go right in for the close. But if you've missed all the steps in between, you often leave people feeling kind of manipulated or it feels uncomfortable or weird. And so, yeah, so that's why the selling staircase. All right. Nikki, if we take all of your work and sort of bundle it together, is it fair to say that the one word that encapsulates you and your methodology would be authenticity? Is that the right term? Uh, yeah, I, I would be so happy to be affiliated with that term for sure. I think sales 
is the idea is that you should be your genuine self in a conversation. You shouldn't try to be like somebody else because that's how you attract your ideal clients is by showing up and being yourself. It's going to attract people to you and repel the people who aren't a good fit. Okay. But the salespeople, God, I hope they're not really that way. You know, when you think of the stereotypical sales, high pressure, you want to buy, you want to buy, you want to buy, you know, I I think that is the old school, like bro marketing. That's somebody who taught somebody that you've got to be aggressive sales is people think that sales is something you're supposed to do to another person. And that's when it feels pushy and gross and aggressive. But sales actually is something you do with another person. And when you start approaching your conversations with a with attitude, it becomes a conversation. It's a collaboration between you and the other person. And sometimes it's not the right fit and that's okay. And oftentimes when you show up with a collaborative approach, it makes it really easy for that other person to stay in conversation with you, to be revealing about what it is that's important to them, and then move them to the next step in the conversation. So give us an example of how that would play out, say, when I'm buying a house or something that all of us have bought. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is that a collaboration? How is that other than them trying to get me to buy the damn thing? <laughs> Well, the thing is, first and foremost, they should be asking if you have a need or a want to buy a house, because if you don't, you're not a good fit, right? So that's right off the bat. The second thing is they should be asking your permission to even show you the house because, you know, I don't know about you, but if somebody just comes up to you off the street, grabs your wrist and says, Hey, follow me. I'm going to walk you through this house. You're going to want to buy it. You probably would say, uh, I don't think so. I'm not going to go with you. But if somebody came up and asked you, hey, have you ever thought about, you know, your next house? And maybe you say, yes, actually, I'm thinking about it right now. And they ask you questions about what's important to you about the next house you want to buy. And they say, you know, I do have a house in mind. Would you be interested in looking at it? Then you might be more likely to go along. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So that's what it is. It's about issuing invitations. It's about asking permission and it's checking to understand that what's going on for this person. Do they have a need or a want? And if somebody doesn't have a need or a want, it's a waste of time and energy and frankly resources to try to change their mind or convince somebody you should buy a house. All right. So another important word is the relationship idea. How do we establish a relationship, say in an outbound sales situation, I'm trying to sell software and I call you and say, Hey, I see that you're an author and I have great author software and I'd love for you to look at it. How do we establish or how do I force you to have a relationship with me so that you'll, you know, participate in this relationship selling in a completely cold start. Where does the relationship come from? Well, I think you should warm up your cold calls. I think cold calling uh, right now as a way to reach out to people is a huge waste of time. And you calling somebody saying, I have software, I want you to look at it. That's all about you. And that's not interesting to somebody who doesn't know you or doesn't 
like care at all about who you are and hasn't indicated that they're interested in software that has anything to do with them being an author. So first and foremost, you should be warming up your calls. You should only be reaching out to people who have expressed some type of interest. And if you can't reach out to somebody who has expressed some kind of interest, then when you reach out, you should be asking questions versus making statements. Telling people what you want is a huge waste of time because they don't care about you. They only care about something that's interesting to them. So instead of saying, I want to show you my software, you should be asking, would you be interested in looking at a software that might help you expand your reach with your latest book? Sure. I'd love to see that. Great. Do you have a few minutes now that I could walk you through something? So you're asking another question. So you're not talking at people, telling people what you want, what they should look at, all of that. That's talking at people. But questions are talking with. And when you ask people questions, you're showing respect to them as the person who gets to make the decision as to what we're going to do next. Okay. And but we still don't have a relationship or uh, what does relationship even mean? Does that mean that you ask how many kids I have? No, no relationship to me is built on the foundation of rapport. Now, maybe you could be asking about somebody's family and their situation, but I, I think that is a little bit of like old school type sales of like, I'm trying to look for some way to connect to you. The real connection should be based on that they have a want or a need or they have a problem and that I have a potential solution that would meet that need and that want and that problem. And the way that I can establish relationship and rapport with you is by showing respect, by asking you questions, by finding out if this is something interesting to you. Do I have your permission to show it to you? All of those things start to build relationship. And because I'm asking you questions and because you're also talking in the conversation, that is starting to build relationship. Think about the first time maybe you've met somebody recently chances are you had this great back and forth dialogue. You asked a question, they answered. Maybe they then asked you a question and you answered. It's this nice back and forth flow. And if you're not having that in conversation with a prospective client, it's very hard to earn their business. Nikki, that's where I'm confused because when I do meet that person and establish the relationship, I'm asking about their kids, their life, their golf their business, right? Isn't that all the things we ask about when we get to know somebody? You could be. Absolutely. You might be, but, but I have a ton of clients. You're talking about I don't a business relationship only related to this software package. Well, when we're, we're talking about first meeting somebody or having a sales conversation, spending a bunch of time you know, trying to get them to be revealing about what's going on in their personal life may not be relevant to the conversation and they're probably not going to give you that much time to even get that far. So can you talk about those things as you're having more conversations, as you're getting to know each other, as you're working together? Absolutely. That stuff is going to come naturally, but forcing it is probably not in your best interest because people see through that, you know, somebody who tries to like imply a relationship with you off the bat or is asking you questions that you feel like, I don't know if I want to answer this because I'm not even sure why they're asking. You don't want to leave that impression. So instead you should be 
talking about what the purpose of the call is. You need to be upfront about the purpose of the call and see if it's something that they're interested in exploring with you. And then, you know, yes, throughout the conversation, maybe some of these things come up when you're asking them a question and they share something like, well, you know, the reason I wrote my book is because I wanted to share the story of what happened between myself and a family member. Okay, then maybe you could ask a question about that because that is relevant to the conversation. All right. What is on the staircase? Are there actual steps or is it only an analogy? Uh, are there, is there a method that I can one, two, three, four, get better? Absolutely. So there are five steps to the selling staircase. The first step is the introduction step. And the objective in that step is to make a powerful first impression. The second step is to create curiosity. This is the most missed step, by the way. Most people don't know how to create curiosity when they're talking about their products or their services. So when you create curiosity, what happens usually is people will start to give you buying signals. When you get a buying signal, that's a great opportunity to move them or invite them to the next step, which step three is discovery. This is where we're really kind of digging into what is going on for you. What kind of a, a problem or a need do you have? And I'm asking questions that leads us down the path to identifying whether or not you're an ideal client for me. And then once we identify, yes, you have a problem, I have a potential solution for you, then I'm going to move you to step four, which is the proposal. That's where I'm actually selling. That's where I'm laying out a potential solution for your problem. And then step five goes really closely with step four, and that's the close. And the objective here is to actually get close language out of your mouth. This, the close is the second most missed step. Most people might make it to step four, and then they kind of hang out and wait for the the client or the prospect to do something next, but that's a mistake. It's your job to guide the person. So therefore you need to ask for the business at the end of that part of the conversation. I love the analogy of this, like a dating relationship, you know, and then it breaks down in step five where, you know, if it was just a stereotypical dating thing, the man would say, you know, just ask. And in reality, the woman is usually saying, let's get married. When are you going to ask me to marry you? And so <laughs> that's where the analogy breaks down because the buyer doesn't go, when are you going to sell me the printer? Sell me the printer. I want to buy the printer, you know? So uh, maybe that's just me in my dating life. Maybe, maybe everybody wants to, everybody wants to be with you. Everybody wants to marry you. I love that for you. But the fact of the matter <laughs> is when you, when you, um, when you walk somebody through the sales conversation, oftentimes, once you get to step five, they are ready to buy, but you have to be willing to ask the question so they can make the decision. Yes, I'm ready. Or I have another question or I need to think about it or whatever they're going to say next. But we've got to get to that place where we put the decision in front of them. All right. I love your steps, Nikki. I want to go back and do some follow-up on all of them. So number okay. one, the introduction, making a good first impression. So does mm -hmm. that mean what you've already referred to ask if I'm allowed to show you the, the sample, uh, where does the first impression, what do you mean? Is it showing up on time in a nice suit with a nice smile with my Colgate? You know, <laughs> it, could be. it could be. It absolutely could be. Now, sometimes first impressions happen 
because people have seen something you've posted on social media. Sometimes it's because they've seen your website or sometimes it's because you're actually, you know, face to face with them. You've walked into their place of business or maybe you've reached out to them via email or a phone call. So one powerful first impression in if you're doing a reach out again is to ask a question in the beginning of the conversation because that shows that you're there and you have a purpose. You should state the purpose of why why you're sending them an email or why you've walked into their place of business or why you're having that phone call. And one of the first questions that I would ask people, for instance, if I'm calling them on the phone is, I would ask them, did I catch you at a bad time? And the reason I ask that question is because I'm showing I respect your time. And if this isn't a good time for you, then I, it gives me the opportunity to ask if there's a better time. The other thing is I'm asking you a different question than everybody else asks, which is, did I catch you at a good time? I want you to answer the question legitimately. And if I ask you a different question that you're not used to answering, that's not a common question that you get, it will slow you down enough to give you, usually will give me the opportunity for you to give me a real answer. So that's one way just to make, to start to think about a powerful first impression in person. One of the other mistakes that people often make is they don't introduce themselves. They just kind of walk in and, or they kind of barge into the conversation, but you should be introducing yourself because you need to allow people that opportunity. They're going to make judgments about you. You want to make sure that the judgments they're making are hopefully going to be good. So be professional. You know, should you show up in a nice suit? Well, it depends on what you're selling and, and it depends on who you're walking into. That may not be appropriate in certain situations. So you should know your audience and you should, you should dress and, and be prepared appropriately. My son is a salesman, Nikki. Uh, he's just out of college. He's 25, 26, and he's had a couple of jobs now. And now he's with one of the top tech companies in the world. Uh, they have their name on towers in every building or every city. And, uh, he got that job, uh, from a sales or a job fair. And he was walking around and he was a wrestler, very good collegiate wrestler, national championships and stuff like that. And, uh, he has some cabbage ears, you know, that damage mm -hmm. yep. with your yep. ears. And he noticed that a couple of people at the job fair were following him and looking at him. So he finally turned and was like, you know, can I help you? And they said, we assume that you're a wrestler. Is that true? And he's like, yeah, yeah. Love it. And went through that. And they said, our boss always wants to hire wrestlers because they work harder than anyone else. And our first impression was that you have cabbage ears and we'd like to talk to you about a job interview. And so he loves to remind me that he got an interview because of his cabbage ears and his <laughs> first impression. And, uh, that's awesome. Yes. Well, except that I like to, you know, it drives me crazy. They ask cabbage ears. So anyway, <laughs> I think it's not the life of a wrestler. I think it is. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. Next curiosity. They've given some sort of buy signal. Uh, mm -hmm. What are some of the phrases I ask to judge this, to find out if there is curiosity or not? Well, first you need to have responses to questions that create some curiosity. So, you know, I teach a whole class just on creating curiosity, but it's about planting seeds. So sometimes you can plant seeds in the questions that you ask, 
but you can also plant seeds in the questions that somebody would ask you. So for instance, if you asked me, Mickey, how are you today? I might say, Oh, I'm fantastic. I'm working on something brand new in the business and, and I'm super excited to launch it. Now, if I said that to you, you may go, oh, that's nice. Or you might go, well, what is it? Tell me more. And that's what we're going for is I want to create that like ability or opportunity for you to ask me questions as well. So the way I answer your questions should hopefully plant a seed that would make you go, what does that mean? Tell me more about that or um, something around there. So you've got to create some curiosity. And then when let's say that I, I say that to you and you go, tell me a little bit about this thing that you're working on. And I tell you a little bit and you go, gosh, that sounds like something that we maybe could use in our organization. That is a buying signal right there. So if you say that to me, my next step is to invite you to the next step in the process, which is the discovery. So in that case, I would say to you, is that something you'd like to chat more about? Would you mind if I asked you a little bit about your organization and what's important to you guys? And then if you, chances are you're going to say yes to that, now I'm going to ask you, now I'm in the discovery phase. Like we've moved out of creating curiosity. So I'll, I'll pause there and let you interject or ask a question about that. Thank you. So many people don't, and I have to interrupt. <laughs> you know, my next one is about the close. Is our biggest mistake that we just don't ask? Yes. Hundred percent. The biggest mistake is that you don't ask. Would you be interested in buying this product this quarter? You need to ask some version of that question. And the reason that you have to ask is because I don't know if you've heard this before, but they say that most of us have decision fatigue because we we have to make so many decisions every single day. So I don't know. I'm so tired of my wife asking me what I want for dinner. Exactly. Right? Yes. I just put some food in my face. Yes. Right. Like we have so many decisions. I don't know if you've heard this, but they say the average adult makes a certain number of decisions every day. Have you heard the stats on that? Yeah. Like a thousand or something like that. Some crazy number. It's actually like 30,000 a day. You make 30,000 decisions a day. on Except average. I'm only making a thousand. I'm dropping 29,000 balls. <laughs> Your wife wants to have a conversation with you about it. I guarantee you that. <laughs> no, here's the thing. Because we have decision fatigue, our brains are lazy and our brains are tired. So if we don't have to make a decision, we won't. So you you have to put the decision in front of the person and it needs to be simple so they can say yes, no, or have a question. So you get to that place where you go to the close and you would say to them, you know, is this something that you're ready to move forward with? That's a closed statement. And then I have to zip it and I have to wait and I have to let you respond. Nikki, we've been talking a lot about pedagogy and what your philosophy and methods are. We only have about a couple minutes left. Talk to us from a completely different standpoint. How do you build a great thought leadership business? How do you make money teaching others to sell? What are some of your most important tricks that you've learned? Uh, in the second part of your career where you're not trying to sell me a thing, you're trying to sell me you. Yes. Well, there's a couple things to that. One is I think you do need to know what is the thing that people find the most interesting or the most surprising about your knowledge base. And you need to highlight that. That is where your thought leadership starts to come out. What are the things that work that you know work that are different than everybody else is talking about? Can you highlight those things? 
And then the next thing is you have to put offers in front of people on a regular basis. If you really want to grow your business, you should be selling. And what I find with a lot of entrepreneurs is they're so afraid to send out an offer or to invite somebody to work with them because they don't want to come off salesy and they don't want to come off aggressive. So they don't at all. But let's say, you know, if you're not bringing in sales into your business, you have a hobby, you don't have a business. So it's really, really crucial that you make offers on a regular basis. I always say you got to hit the trifecta. You got to make the right offer to the right person at the right time. But I, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know when that's going to be. That means I have to put offers out regularly in the marketplace and allow people to buy from me. And I need to be shouting from the rooftops all the time what I have available to sell. That is great. I love it. I love that line. Shouting Thank what you. I've got. <laughs> Nikki, great information, great advice, and congratulations on the book. It is. 4.7 stars with 90 reviews, which is an incredible success that puts it in the top 1% of reviewed books on that Amazon place. So pretty damn impressive. How do we find out more about you? Follow you online, continue to learn from you. Well, can I wrap it around a gift for your listeners? Is that okay? Yes, of course. Okay. Then I have a I have a mini training that walks through those five steps. It's called Mastering the Sales Conversation. And each of your listeners can go grab it by going to yoursalesmaven.com forward slash school. So this is for your listeners. Awesome. And then we'll be connected. Fantastic. We will blast that out as well and hope that people are smart enough to do that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Nikki, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, great stuff. And who's the hardest person or organization you've ever had to sell to? NASA. Because of the government regulations or because they're <laughs> smarter than us because they're rocket scientists? <laughs> Mostly it has to do with red tape and actually getting, getting on site to their facility to do a demonstration. What were you trying to sell to them? At the time I was selling... Uh, wireless audio um, systems that were encrypted. Ah, they would need that. They do. They did. They bought it. So they did need it. There's all of those recordings of the astronauts saying stuff that they're not supposed to, you know, <laughs> so like, where's that other spaceship come from? Are those aliens? Nikki, <laughs> thank you so much. And hope you'll come back. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And we will be right back. We are back in again. Thank you so much for being with us on this day where we are talking all things sales. I want to focus now on B2B and welcome our next guest. His name is Bill Kasky. He is a sales development uh, extraordinaire. He has been doing sales and he was shocked that he ended up growing to like it. He wasn't a salesperson at first, which I think is interesting because I wasn't either. I don't like sales also, and I've sort of grown into it. He, though, has become incredibly successful with it and now has several books and two podcasts about it, both with an incredible number of downloads, and the books have been very well-reviewed and are very successful on that Amazon place. His website is Bill Kasky, 
C-A-S-K-E-Y.com. Bill, welcome. How you doing? Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to this. So your website says that you didn't start off as a sales type. Uh, <laughs> I'm a shy introvert. What's your sales objection as a person? Well, I've always been kind of extroverted, but I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I didn't have any other qualifications when I got out of college. And so somebody said to me once, you know what? You need to get into sales. It's free time and it's a lot of money. And blah, blah, blah. okay, well, I tried it and I didn't get any help. You know, there was no mentoring back then, no coaching. And so I, I squandered my 20s just, you know, doing a lot of stuff, partying a little bit too much and not really taking the profession seriously. And so I went on like a little learning jag where I said, look, I got to figure this thing out because this ain't working very well for me. So uh, I got pretty serious about studying the profession of sales and uh, found out some things that I didn't want to do. And over the last 30 years, I've trained and coached thousands of salespeople and companies and a little bit counterintuitive, some modern sales strategies. All right. I love anything counterintuitive. That always piques my interest. <laughs> Give me an example. Well, the first thing we teach people is, you know, a lot of people, Jim, like you have a kind of a suspicious uh, perception of selling and they know they need to do it, but they're not cut out for it. And they, they kind of, they kind of just go through the motions. But I think part of that's because we haven't really framed selling in the right way. And my counterintuitive approach is you shouldn't be trying to convince or persuade your prospect to do anything. There's no, and that's the traditional sales mode is I'm here to convince and persuade and defend and, and handle objections and all that kind of garbage. But I think if you do it right and you start the process and the relationship right, you don't have to do that. And so I always say that it's better if the customer is selling you rather than you selling them. When they're selling you on why they need what you do and why they have problems that are worth solving, you don't have the objections and all the garbage that we you know, preach and teach on how to overcome them. It just changes the whole dynamic. So my, my whole preference is let's change the sales dynamic away from the old method to a new, more humane method where there's two people. One person has a problem that needs solving. One person has a solution for that problem potentially. And let's see if we can work together. I just think it adds a, a more humane touch to sales. And does that even work if it's outbound versus inbound? I understand that if they call you and say, Hey, we really need a forklift. But <laughs> if you call them and say, Hey, do you need a forklift? And they're in the software business. I hope yeah, the software is a problem. That <laughs> that's, that's a problem. Yeah, I'm presuming you're going to be, and, and yes, it does work for outbound. And here's the way I would coach people. I have a lot of clients, business to business, and 90% of them don't have inbound leads or enough of them. So they're relying on outbound. But I think it all gets back to how do you set the stage? How do you create the environment on an outbound call where quickly you get out of that sales mode? Because when the phone rings and a prospect picks it up, it doesn't take longer than five seconds before they know it's a salesperson. And I want to, I want to get out of that. I want to, um, I don't want to be in that mode. So I would start, I always tell people start by just saying, look, I have no idea if what I have would be of any value to you. I really don't. And you really don't. Um, sorry about that. Um, but the, the challenge there is, do you have the courage to do that? 
So I want to create the environment where they're selling me. So I've got to start with this concept of, I don't know. I don't know. And when you do that, they don't know either. So you're meeting them right where they are in the process. Okay. So what is the typical response from either they're going to say, oh, I do need that or that's not interesting at all, right? I mean, it's an A-B response, isn't it? That could be. I mean, if you say, I, I don't know if we have anything, uh, here's what I'd like to do today is share with you a little bit about some of the things that we do. I'd like to hear from you if you have anything that uh, might have your attention right now in this area. And if you want a proposal at some point, great. If you don't, that's fine. We can We can move on from there. I just think that you've got to relax. You've got to chill. The instant you start doing the stuff that sales coaching from the 70s has taught you, and this is 1970s, although 1870s probably too, when you, when you start doing those things, that's when you meet resistance. I don't want resistance. I don't want to do anything that creates resistance. Why would I want to do that? So I think taking a slightly different approach or a, a significantly different approach really helps. Now, at some point, maybe the person is not ready. Maybe they don't want to talk. Okay, fine. I move on. But I want to, I want to raise the odds and I'm going to have a, a thorough, rigorously honest conversation. And I do that by creating that environment. All right. But as you said, I know within five seconds that you're there to sell me. So how do you set the stage, as you put it, to not have those five seconds happen like that? Yeah. Let's do one. Well, I mean, one thing you could do is, is acknowledge that, look, I'm calling, I'm cold calling. And I have no idea if there's anything that you do that I could help you with. Um, if there is, I'd be happy to talk with you. If you're not, if you're busy, we can reschedule. I mean, I think that's the thing that people get freaked out about is you're interrupting people and you are, I don't like cold calls. I just, I think that there's better ways to prospect than cold calls. But if you must make them, you've just, just got to be yourself, just chill, detach from the outcomes. That's the problem is that the first five seconds a salesperson speaks is probably speaking of baggage that they've learned in the last 20 years. I don't want to do that. It seems like your strategy is I'm here to sell to you if you want it. And here it is. But I don't really care if you buy it or not. It seems very nonchalant. And that's, I mean, that is detached from the result. Is that right? I mean, that's correct. Yeah. Detachment it, uh, to me, detachment is a superpower of salespeople because once you're attached to getting an appointment, getting a deal, getting them to love you, whatever, whatever you're attached to is the instant you're out of control. You're, you're not in control anymore because your emotions are overcoming the intention of the call, which is to determine together whether there's anything you can help them with. So I think if you, if you enter these calls with a servant's heart detached from the outcome, you will be shocked at how much better these calls go. I'm not saying you're going to sell 90% of them, but at least you're going to have a conversation that then you can decide, do I want to pursue this or not? Right. I bet you were really good at dating because to me, this is the exact same thing as dating. <laughs> and I always found that if you wanted to go out with a really, really, really bad, that you smell no. like it. You smell yeah. like desperation. <laughs> That's and right. If you're kind of nonchalant, ah, maybe we'll go out. I don't know. We'll see what happens that you end up falling in love. You know? Yes. I didn't know this stuff when I was dating. So <laughs> I, I, um, but yeah, I think that's it. And the, the key to all this, Jim, is I don't want to use it as a, as some kind of a sales move. I don't want it to be manipulative because it can, it can move down that path pretty quickly. I truly 
don't care when I make a call or when people call me, I don't care whether they work with me or not until which time we discover together whether there's anything I can do. I care, but I never care more than the prospect. And the problem salespeople have in startups or any kind of uh, area is they start to care too much. And then they start to pitch and then they start to act like a salesperson. And then the person puts up resistance and objections. And now I'm in this game. I don't want to be in that game. But how do you handle objections? Say that you have someone who definitely wants to buy the forklift, uh, but they come back, the, the CFO steps in and says, well, we're going to price shop or not this quarter. Uh, what do you do when you have buy-in from your friend, but the rest of the mm -hmm. organization is playing gatekeeper? Yeah. Well, there's a couple options. One is I don't ever want to propose a solution to somebody who, who can only say no. I, I, I need to talk to that CFO. I need to talk to the CEO. And if they don't allow me to talk to them, then I'm probably not going to propose at all. I mean, you know, the, the, the doctor gets to name the process. When you go in for a heart surgery, the doctor is not asking you anything. The doctor is saying, look, here's what we're going to do. And you're, you don't get a choice in the matter. So I think say, I think we sales professionals need to be a little bit more indignant about what is our ideal process? Our ideal process is not to quote a purchasing agent uh, without uh, con confirming the need with the CFO or the functional, functional manager. And a lot of times we do that because we say to ourselves, oh, he wants a quote. Great. Let's fire up the quote machine. And really, you never talk to all the people who really matter in the organization. So one option I would say is you've got to get, you've got to understand your client well enough to know who do you need to be talking to there prior to proposing. Now, if it's a price issue with them, let's say that you do get to the CFO or CEO, whomever, and you are, you know, you're in the proposal stage, I always want to bring up price early. I don't, if I'm always 10% high, always, and you kind of know, you know, you, you know how high you are where you compete. I want to bring that up. I don't want to, I don't want to spend a lot of time proposing on something that I know I'm going to get price shopped. So, if I'm 10% high, I might say to the prospect, look, uh, I'm happy to propose to you. Let me, let me tell you kind of where we're going to end up. If, if uh, history repeats itself, I'm probably not going to be low bid. I may be five points higher, seven points higher. If you, if you decide to go with me, here's what that extra five to 7% gets you. Here's what's different about this. Here's how this is going to improve your bottom line. I mean, there's justifications that you can do. But I don't want the first time that the customer realizes I'm 10% high to be on a proposal. I just think that's a total waste of time. It's a waste of their time too. So I want to broach that subject prior to them seeing it on a, on a, a proposal or a contract. And do you have is, that counter, is that counterintuitive enough? <laughs> uh, some of it is, some of it is not, you know, I, uh, I certainly agree. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm not a pushy salesman type guy. And so I, uh, this is closer to my core Good. than, uh, the pushy thing. Uh, I started off as a business person with, uh, so little self-esteem that I brought on a business partner to talk for me because mm -hmm. I was afraid to talk in any circumstance. 
And it turned out he was also afraid to talk in certain circumstances. <laughs> he was good at some, but not every, you know, and so uh -huh. I had to do some and, uh, we were selling summer camp. My first business back in my twenties, I started, uh, what turned out to be the world's largest summer camp company with really 89 locations around the world at Stanford, MIT, Georgetown, UCLA, SMU. And we developed wow. a rule bill that we would talk to mom for nine minutes. Okay. And after that, we're done. We've answered yeah. your questions in nine minutes. And after that, we say, ma'am, that week is filling up. If you want to go, we need your credit card. Yep. I love it. And it was I love a it, very you, egotistical type thing. Well, but you, yeah, but you have, you have something slightly different there, which I like actually is you had a, you, there, you, if a thousand people wanted to sign up for a hundred person camp, couldn't do it. So there was a built in scarcity, right? Yes. Yes. And so, and I think the same thing could go for sales professionals today. The scarcity part of the sa average sales world is time. And so if, if a person wants to put me through, jump through hoops and put me through all the bureaucracy and legal, which I know sometimes you have to go through legal, I've got to decide as a sales professional, what am I willing to tolerate and what am I not willing to tolerate? And I don't mean tolerate in a bad way, but if somebody says, look, you know, it's going to take us a year to make this decision. I need to have you in here every month for the next year for four hours a month, teaching, telling us how you're going to, I'm like, nope, I'm out. Sorry. That, that violates my rules which is one of the things that I always teach my clients is have a code of conduct, have some kind of rules of engagement. Yours was nine minutes. I love that. You knew exactly. You probably did some research to find that that was kind of the sweet spot. But you, I think most salespeople will say, well, yeah, I know when I talk to the CEO, my odds go up to a 75% close rate. And when I don't, it's a 15% close rate. Well, there's your rules right there. I can't go any further until I talk to your CEO or whomever that is. And once you, once you lay that groundwork and you, you abide by it, you can't come off that. The prospect knows, okay, that's fine. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times, Jim, I've the VP of sales calls of a small company. And I realize that a VP of sales can't spend 50, 60, $80,000 or whatever the thing is he's got to have, he or she has to have CEO buy-in. And I've, I've lost some where they say, nope, I'm not going to get the CEO on the phone. And I say, okay, then it's not going to work. When they do, guess what happens? That's probably 80% closed then. So it's just a matter of having some rules of engagement and carrying through on those, being fearless and, and, and live by those rules. And I think you'll find sale, your conversion percentage definitely goes up. And how do we create scarcity for something like software where there ain't no scarcity? but I still need to create that impression. You said through yeah. time, um, explain that a little bit more. I understand. I'm not going to wait around a year for you, but am I going to lose the sale just because you want a month of my time? How do, how do I create scarcity? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. So the salesperson's time is one, is one form of scarcity. So, but maybe you say, well, geez, I, I that's a lie because I got plenty of time to call on these people. The other form of scarcity is your process is have a sales process. That's good for the customer. It's got to be good for the customer, not just you, but have a sales process, have it documented and say, look, 
first meeting, here's what we do. It's 30 minutes on the phone. We talk to you and a couple of your people. We get to understand you and the problem you're facing. Step two is we come back and, and do an analysis or whatever step two is. And then step three is we come back to you with a proposal. And then after that, um, we're going to let you think about it, tweak on it. And then within 14 days, we would need an answer. The answer could be no, or the answer could be yes, and then live by that process. So the scarcity there is you're going to go away. You're going to move on to the next prospect. That's, a, that's the truest form of scarcity. They don't get what you have. And so that's how I would incorporate scarcity because time, it's hard to justify that, but have a process and say, this is how we do it. This is what our process looks like. If they don't want to follow it or at any time during the process, they opt out. That's fine. They opt out. I move on. Because if you have a, if you have a lead generation system that's constantly generating leads for you, you don't care whether one person does business with you or not. So it's a lot easier to uphold your rules of engagement if you have 19 people on the front end waiting to talk to you. All right. So what? Summer camp, Bill, I was selling Stanford MIT sponsored by Intel and Microsoft. How can I help you? And that's how he answered the phone. Summer camp at, at Stanford at MIT uh -huh. sponsored by Intel and Microsoft. How can I help you? And this was a, this was a prospect who was considering mom. putting a person in that mom. mom. Okay. It's mom. Okay. 99% of the time we talk to mom. Okay. And mom is a hundred percent. The decision maker. Never dad. They say dad, but never dad. That was a lie. <laughs> uh, and so how do you say you're selling, I don't know, Microsoft or Salesforce or one of the, the kings of software. Mm -hmm. So I was really good. I've been always been really good at selling, uh, the prestige. I try to wrap myself in. I got published a book. My first book was by McGraw Hill. You know, awesome. I want to wrap awesome. myself in the, as many brand names of other people as I can. How do I use that as a salesperson? How do I say, well, I sell for Salesforce. You know, I'm not, you know, that other guy, you know, I'm Salesforce yeah. for God's sakes. How do you do that without sounding like an arrogant jerk in yeah. B2B? Well, doesn't the Salesforce brand carry with it some panache? Of course, but you, you I want to. Well, what I want to do is take it out and put it on the table. Okay. I want the panache right. on the table, right? So that they help the sale, yeah, right? It, doesn't that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so when you're talking with a, a CRM prospect, then aren't they going to know you're at Salesforce? Of or course, you, Is that what you're asking? Yeah, they're they're going to yeah. know. But how do I capitalize on that? How do I you know, really show that off without being the jerk about it? I think you have to tell us, tell a story. Maybe it's a Salesforce story. I just happened to watch Mark Benioff since we're speaking of Salesforce yesterday at their conference. And, uh, I was worried about Mark. He looked like he <laughs> didn't know if he was going to make it or not. <laughs> um, anyway, um, yeah, I think you tell the, the Salesforce story. Look, you've probably heard of Salesforce and yes, I have. And I don't know how much you know about it, but let me, let me give you a two minute story on why we exist, how we started and why people use Salesforce today doesn't mean you will, but this is this is a little bit of that trying to get the story. I think story is so important. Whether the person knows about your company or not, they probably don't. Like I don't. My daughter works for Salesforce. I don't know that I know the whole Salesforce story, and nor do I know why people reach out to them. I know they reach out to buy CRM, but the story is a good way to put on display 
your brand in a way that allows the prospect to connect with that brand other than just the features and benefits of using the CRM. So I think story of origin is important. I think even the salesperson's story of why they're at Salesforce. You know, what, what, yeah. what was there about? What's that? I, I was just agreeing with you. Oh, yeah, that's, that does sound sexy. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was with Oracle for five years and I got an opportunity to come over to Salesforce. I don't know if Oracle's even a competitor, probably are. And, uh, and are. here's what, here, here's why I, I came is because I saw the commitment and I love the culture and, uh, we are, we are committed to sustainability and net zero and all that stuff. But I think you've got to, I think your story, you're meaning the salesperson. I think that story matters too, because people are buying from people. Of course, we always say that, but then what does that really mean? Well, people are buying from people who have a story that you can connect with. And if they do, you can talk about Salesforce forever and it never feels like you're uh, bragging. It feels like this is just what I do. This is just who I am and who I work for. Uh, oh, wow. With our summer camp bill, I, and I, I, the reason I'm telling you this is because I started off by telling you that I was an introvert. That's the way I sold summer camp. Uh, I was a quiet, shy kid. I wasn't on the football team. I didn't date the cheerleaders. I had trouble socially. <laughs> I wasn't good at the thing as a kid. And so I became a computer dork and you know what? I ended up successful and happy because of that. And mm -hmm. I ended up learning to like myself. And that's actually what we teach here is we te take the kids that are not happy traditionally in normal social programs and we find them a best friend for the first time. That's awesome. And people are like, how do I sign up? Well, you know, cause it, it, it is, if their <laughs> kid is unhappy, yeah. if your kid is unhappy, I am singing the gospel to you. you that's know? right. And so that's and why it's no, so easy to sell. There's no amount of money that's too much for a child An who is not, kid. not potential. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Yes. So, I didn't know it, but we were doing good, Bill. <laughs> well, you can tell by 80 locations. I think you know that. Yes. But, but you know, you you started off by saying, you know, sponsored by IT or uh, Intel and somebody else. Microsoft. I mean, that's part Microsoft. Well, those are two pretty recognizable brands. And they the person knows they're in good hands. And if they can feel like they're in good hands with you on that call, and I like the way you started that call is, uh, you know, here's what we do. How can I help today? What do you have on your mind? Well, and, and let them, let them sell you, let them talk themselves into it rather than you feeling like you have to talk yourself into it. And I know you don't, I mean, I know you're doing it the right way, but you would be surprised at how many salespeople are still trying to talk their customer into buying from them. And it just creates too much resistance. All right, Bill, I got to ask about this. I don't know if you've okay. ever been to Vegas, but you know, the free shows that they give away. If you go to the timeshare sales, oh, yeah. those are, <laughs> yeah. uh, my wife and I did a whole day of that once just for the fun of it. We just had fun, you know, like we, we guaranteed each other. We weren't going to buy and just playing with the poor salesman and he would come up with something and I'd go, but what about the net present value of money? How do you know? And he would, what are you what? what is the net what present? You, you know, and so it was fun for us. For once, and then we don't do that anymore. But I also discovered that that's how they sell replacement windows, that they send a attractive young person by and say, would you like a salesperson to come by and look at replacement windows? And I happen to have a 60-year-old house that has the original windows. And so I was like, yeah, sure. Wow. I was excited. And then they said, well, when will you and your wife be free? 
I'm like, my wife's got nothing to do with the windows. I, I'm allowed to buy windows alone. They would not send anyone until I promised that my wife was going to be there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what's up? You know, I, is that, and it's the same thing with the, the, the timeshares in Vegas. If you show up as a single guy, they will not give you the free tickets. Interesting. Cause they know, they know the re- the research has told them that their rule of engagement is you know, no single dudes. That, that, and they just it might, know that the that a couple is who's going to buy that product. I would assume, although on the on the window thing, I mean, I can see on the timeshare. I, I actually did some training for a timeshare company out in in Barbados, and uh, I did about a year's worth of training. And they had all done the old way, which you're describing. And I said, do you do you not think people are onto that? Do you not think people are a little bit trepid when they are intimidated when they come into this meeting they come into this meeting with all these arm the arms up and it's like look i just want i just told the guy that i was going to come in but i'm not going to buy anything and I, I said you know you have to you have to reduce that level of resistance and so you have to say up front look i know you've probably sat through these things before let me tell you what we're going to do i, I am not going to try to sell you anything if it if at the end of this it feels right. Or you want to have another conversation. I'm happy to do that. My goal today is to see if you're open to it, tell you a little bit about what it looks like. And then at the end, you can make the decision and their closing rate went up because they weren't pounding on people and people became relaxed and they, 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 they got real with the person and the person got real with them and they had awesome meetings. So the old techniques, even in a traditional thing like timeshare, they just don't work. People are onto it and they're just resistant. I just don't like that resistance. Well, we didn't buy a timeshare and I still have my old windows. <laughs> well, they weren't doing it right. <laughs> yes. Bill, great information. I love your message and thank you so much for sharing it. How do we find out more? Follow online, listen to your show, uh, all of that, please. Yeah, best way. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me on too. I appreciate you. Uh, you can go to BillKasky.com. There, you can be directed to hundreds of videos. I've got, as you said, two podcasts, and uh, and you can get access to all that. And plus, we have a newsletter. You want to see uh, some two X strategies every every week? We send out something, and so BillKasky.com, C-A-S-K-E-Y, is the best place to find me. And thank you for having me on, Jim. It is our pleasure. You were great. We are out of time for the whole week. But we are back Monday. Have a great weekend. Be safe. Go make a million dollars. Bye now.